Thank you. All right, well, good morning. If you get a Bible, please, and turn to the book of Romans. Um, if you forgot yours, there should be a blue hardback one in front of you. If you want to borrow that one, feel free to use that one and keep along with us. It'll also be on the, the wall here in just a second. But uh, let me catch you up on where we're at. We're in Romans chapter 3 today. We're going to cover the first 20 verses. Um, and in case you haven't been here with us, I'll catch up in just a second. But uh, when I was uh, a kid, I say this often, but I kind of get in trouble sometimes, shocker, I know you're kind of blown away by that, but I remember as a teenager getting older, there were times when I would get grounded, I would get my car taken away, I couldn't go out, I broke curfew, I did something, and I had an approach, I wanted to talk to my parents about something I wanted to do, but I already anticipated them saying no, I, already, I knew what they were going to say, so I tried to add a little to it, just kind of talk to them. Uh, here's a couple of examples. You know, if, if, uh, Mom, I know my, my room is, is, is gross. Uh, I didn't clean it up like you told me to, but I just want you to know that I, I just left, and it's looking legit clean. It's amazing. I just want you to know that. I'm not asking for anything. I just want you to know that I got trouble, and I want to go hang out with my friends, and you told me not to, but I just want you to know that my room is spotless. I know I'm grounded for breaking curfew, and I'm not able to go out with my friends, but I just want you to know. I know you're going to say no. But I, I, if, if for any reason you said yes, I'll come in 30 minutes early. I mean, I'll come in a little earlier, or I won't go out tomorrow. I won't do that. I just wanted you to know. Uh, or I, I know I haven't done my homework, I haven't studied, I haven't done this stuff, but hear me out, hear me out. I'm going to start getting up early on school mornings, just about 30 minutes early on my own. I'm going to set my own alarm clock. I'm going to study a little bit, got to get a little extra, get the wheels, get the juices flowing, read a little bit, study a little bit, so I'm prepared for school. Just wanted you to know that. I know you don't want me to go out with those friends because you think maybe they're, maybe you know, whatever could happen. I'll, I'll drive myself. If, you, if, you would, if you're going to hypothetically let me go, I know you won't because I haven't done any of these things you just asked me to do. I'm anticipating your objection. You're going to say, no, I know, I know, I know, but hear me out. I'll even take myself. So when the time comes, if I need to leave, I'll leave. You can trust me, Mom. You can trust me, Dad. If my mom's listening to this, she's probably laughing because this probably did happen more than one time. There are times in life where there is an anticipation of an objection, and what this relates to today's text is this is exactly what Paul is doing. He has been writing this powerful letter, amazing letter to the church in Rome. He hadn't got there on his third missionary journey. He's, he's writing this from Corinth. He's talking to this powerhouse church in Rome that he didn't plant, that he hadn't even got to yet. He's heard great things about, but it's full of Jewish Believers, those who have grown up Jew and become uh, Jewish, excuse me, and they have become uh, uh, followers of Jesus, and those of Gentile faith that are not of Jewish, just like most of us in this room, but we come to faith in Jesus. So it's a church that's mixed. It's a church of, full of complexities, but there's lots of religious things that are taking place for these Jews that they're leaning on. Paul is anticipating objections. For 20 years, the apostle has proclaimed the message since the Damascus Road when he was converted. He traveled through all the Mediterranean world, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, teaching. He writes this letter. He's heard great things. He's proclaimed the gospel. Halfway through chapter 2, he anticipates some objections. Thus far, just to catch you up, if you're here for the first time and you haven't been with us at all before we read our, our text, here's what's going on in chapter 2. He anticipated this inner rebellion, excuse me, at the end of chapter 1, this inner rebellion for people who say, thanks but no thanks. I don't need this gospel Jesus. I don't need that. I, I'm good. Powerfully, Paul says three times God gave them over to what they wanted. He allowed them in the wrath of abandonment to say, if that's what you want outside of the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus, God says, go. He also anticipates in chapter 2, which we spent two weeks covering in the last two weeks, of this objection that these religious Jews are going to have. 
they're going to say, well, we're, we're not those Gentile pagans. We're not those people. You know, any sentence that starts off, well, we're, like not, we're not those people. That's not going to be really good. We're not that bad. We're not as bad as, we're good. We are descendants of Abraham raised on the Old Testament, so we're different. And Paul writes a whole chapter and a lot more that religion cannot save you. It's a theme that's going to be woven through the day. You cannot do enough good. You can't keep the law. There's not enough good and avoid enough bad that you're going to be right with God, a just and merciful God for sin. That's, he's going to say, okay, you did enough. You can't. We need help. And so we jump to today in chapter 3, before we stand and read, that everybody needs the gospel. That's the sermon title for the day. He's going to present today, and this is important. I need you to hear this before we read it because it's going to be confusing. In the first eight verses, Paul is going to create a mock argument. He's going to do a little Q&A, and if you just read through it, you're like, what is, this, what is he talking about? And I'm going to do my very best to explain that in a way that makes sense. But he's going to do some objections, some Q&A things. He's going to anticipate, just like I said a while ago, he's going to anticipate some more objections from these religious Jews. And he's going to kind of knock them off, knock them off, knock them off. And he's going to get to the bottom line, everybody needs the gospel. So if you would, let's stand together. We'll read our text, and then I'm going to show you these three things. We're going to break down the first eight verses, and then walk through all 20 together. I'm excited about what God has for us today. Chapter 3, stemming off of all of chapter 2. Religion can't save you, so here's some Q&A that he's going to do a little question and answer, a little devil's advocate, if you will. He says this, verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness, excuse me, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, then what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using this as a human argument, Paul says. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, why not say? As we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles are alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. The mouths, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscience 
conscious excuse me, of sin. Let's pray together. There's a lot there, a lot to cover, but take a deep breath, relax for a minute. In your own heart and your own way, pray this this morning. If your heart's desire is to be changed, don't let the Word of God, let the Spirit change you, then ask Him to do that. If you don't mind, say a prayer for me that the things we cover today, that I might be able to speak it clearly. I can't change you. I, I can't even change me, but I'm praying that the, that the Holy Spirit would do that through the spoken word and by his spirit in this place. So you pray. Father, you heard your people. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Uh, Help us to put ourselves against the scriptures today and to be changed by you. I thank you for the privilege to stand on this stage, and I don't take it lightly, but I thank you for the opportunity to proclaim the word. Help me to do so clearly so it's understood that we can be changed by you. And we ask it in the power of your name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you the first three things. The first eight verses, I need you to stay with me because it can be a little confusing. But here's, the, here's how the breakdown of the first eight verses is going to happen. These are the objections, if you'd like to take notes. We're going to put them back up in just a minute. These are the objections that Paul is anticipating to these religious Jews that are going to have some, some problems. And, and, and we're going to walk through these in just a minute. I'm going to read them to you. What advantage is there does it being a Jew have? Does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Are we doing God a favor by sinning? It doesn't really make sense when you just read it. But it's because we're not coming from their perspective, but I'm going to do my best to help us understand that. So number one, the first question that, that Paul is anticipating as he's doing a little Q&A, as he's kind of doing a little mock argument of raising the question and then addressing it, he says this, well, what advantage then? Fine, okay, all this stuff of chapter two, being a Jew doesn't matter, being religious doesn't matter, then what's the advantage, what's the point of being a Jew? Or what value is there of circumcision? And we talked about that, about that being for the people of Israel, setting themselves apart. So Paul just got through hammering religion that can't save you. It's a legitimate question, something that us in the 21st century church, we have to wrestle with as well. We can't be be Christian enough, go to church enough, give enough, say say enough good things and avoid the bad things and think that there is anything we bring to the table that God's going to say, you're good. It is only by the work of Jesus. And so he wants them to understand the answer is, verse 2 says, "There's, there's much advantage. There's value in being Jewish. So don't diminish that. He said the Jews have been trusted with the very words of God. So Paul says, I'm not saying that. There is value in having the Old Testament, to having the law, having the the Old Testament scriptures. Paul wanted them to know that possessing the words of God or being circumcised, external religion, none of that's going to carry any weight. It's all designed to get you to the gospel, to get you to Jesus. So just like us, if we bank on any of that stuff, none of that matters. They're all to get you to Jesus. So Jesus was dealing with this mindset for for the religious Jews and the Pharisees. And in chapter 5 of John, look what he says. This is a mindset. Remember I told you that even the Jews, they believed in this time that if you studied it, studying it was almost equal to living it. So you don't have to live it out. Just just read it and study it. But look what Jesus hammers this in chapter 5. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think... That in them you have eternal life. You're trusting in the scriptures alone. These are the various scriptures that testify about me. Did you see that? He's, he's talking to these religious leaders and these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And he says, you think if you trust in the scriptures, you're going to find life. But these scriptures, they're, they're talking about me. They're pointing to me. Verse 40, but you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. We did this last year in John. What he's trying to get these religious leaders to realize, don't trust 
in the scriptures alone. Now, you're, if, if that was a soundbite, if somebody heard that, they'd think, whoa, pastor says this, what are you talking about? If we worship the Bible, if we worship the scriptures, if that's it and it doesn't get us to Jesus, we're just acquiring knowledge. In the Old Testament, this was something of circumcision and, uh, and the value of the law. He says it is a value, but it's to get you to Jesus, and Jesus hammered that in chapter 5 of John. You think you're going to find eternal life just by studying and knowledge of things, but that's not going to happen. They're trying to get to you to me. So Paul wants to reiterate to these, the, in, in, in these, these Jewish believers in, in Rome that it's not just about knowledge. There is great benefit of being God's chosen people of Jewish heritage and belief, but there's, there's value in circumcision. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't get you to the, to the need for Jesus, which is what the law was to point you to, then you're missing it. All of it by itself is insufficient. So number two, that's number one. Number two is, does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Here's question number two. What, what if some... What if, some are unfaithful. Well, their unfaithfulness is going to bring God's, bring, nullify God's faithfulness. So some of these Jewish people refuse to obey. They don't want to believe. Is all of God's plan a loss? If those of Jewish belief are saying, I don't care, I don't get it, I don't even want to know it, does that nullify God's faithfulness? Of course not. Because there's many in the Scriptures, many today that would choose not to believe. And the answer is in verse 4. He says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, there's a quote around verse, verse 4. I'm going to explain this to you. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. I know these first eight verses are going to go quickly, but Paul's saying, of course God's faithfulness is not nullified or lost because people sin, people struggle. Our faith, faithlessness reveals how committed he is the truth. He doesn't rescue us because of what we're doing. He rescues us in our sin. So many of these Jews, they rejected the gospel, but God is still faithful, and these pastors are right and true. But at verse 4, I want to make note of this. He's quoting from Psalm 51. We need help. We need to understand that our sin is against him. It's not just things that we do or things that we don't do. He, he quotes Psalm 51, which is the Psalm of David, after Bathsheba in that incident where, where Nathan steps in and he calls him out on his sin. But I want you to see this in Psalm 51. If you go back and you can look at this because David is driven to his knees in brokenness of sin. He says this, have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity or my sin and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Look at verse 4. Against you and only you have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You see, Paul quotes this to see how David realized his sin was against God. And ultimately, his sin against people was a sin against God. Paul uses this as an example that we are all going to stand before a just God. He wants everyone to understand that any thought of questioning our sinfulness doesn't nullify the righteousness it proves. Let me say it again. Our sinfulness, our transgressions, it doesn't nullify that God isn't good. It proves it. God is perfectly justified to condemn and to, 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 to bring his wrath for sin for us. David said, you are right. Did you see what he said? He says, you are right to judge my sin. I deserve it, and I'm asking for mercy. I have sinned against you and you alone. 
He is driven to his need for mercy. He doesn't just use this as an excuse to prove any unfaithfulness of God. God will never break his covenant or his redemptive plans will never be thwarted. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has a plan. And the gospel of Jesus is sufficient in everything of the old covenant, of the old law. All of that, even from the old, was to drive us to see the hope of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, I'm what the scriptures are talking about. That's question number two. Quickly, question number three, and then we're going to get to the rest of it. He raises this, and it's a couple of things. He says, oh, okay, oh, are we doing God a favor by sinning? So the question is in, in, in verse, verse 5, if you want to read along. Okay, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, then what shall we say? That, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And I like the parentheses that I'm using a human argument where Paul's saying, I don't believe this, this is crazy, but I just want to be clear, I don't believe this. This shows the craziness of what Paul is anticipating. He shows that, that these human fickle hearts, what, the, what he's anticipating. I mean, we're all going to sin, right? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin. I'm going to sin. I can't stop sinning. Pastor David says we're born sinners. We're going to sin all the time. So it, wouldn't that make God like a, a big bully to just judge us for something we can't even stop doing? Where's the grace and mercy in that? Verse 6. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Paul says no. He spends all of chapter 9, we'll get there later, but he's explaining this over and over. This objection or, or attempt to make God seem unfair, to punish sinners. And the truth is, church, that is a very big 21st century issue for the church. You will find a lot of churches that will do not want to talk about wrath of sin or sin in general or any consequences. We want to rainbows and unicorns and I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, we're all going to get there someday. And Paul's tried to head these things off because he's anticipating this. We bring about a worldly notion of, quote, fairness, that God has to be fair to us. God is a righteous judge, and God can do whatever he wants to in his sovereignty. And his final anticipation comes in the last question, which is in verse 7. Okay, if, if my sin makes God look better, should I sin even more? It's crazy. Look at verse 7. Somebody might argue, well, okay, if my falsehood or my sin enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? It's the same question as before. Answers in verse 8. Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we claim, let us do evil so good may result. Their condemnation is just. So I, I want to paraphrase all of this to say Paul is anticipating all of these things. They're, they're thinking about the law and they're thinking about all these objections. Let's sin more so God's grace will be evident. Let's, then why is God unjust? He can't, he can't condemn us for sin if we can't stop sinning. And he's using verses 1 through 8. And then We're going to move on. Please stay with me. Verses 1 through 8, he's using this mock argument, this anticipation of objections from these guys to set up the point that there is a universal need for the gospel. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, sinner, saint, whoever, whatever, he is pressing the great human need of the gospel. So look at verse 9. Now we're going to move quickly. In light of that argument, he knocks all of those out of the park, and then he says in verse 9, but what are we going to conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. So Paul is developing, stay with me please on this, he is developing this universal guilt of the human race for sin. We're all under sin. It is a positional term. We are guilty as charged. That we are guilty under sin. And under sin is basically the equivalent of being unrighteous. And Paul is going to turn to the Old Testament scriptures, you're going to see lots of quotes he's going to pull. They're not direct quotes, so it's kind of confusing, and I don't have time to go through all of it. 
But from 9 to 21, you're going to see lots of quotes. And what he's doing is he's pulling snippets here. He's going to pull all of the Old Testament scriptures, a little snippet here, snippet here, and he's going to put together this 9 through 21 in a way to help them understand that we need Jesus. The gospel is the only way to salvation. Everyone needs the gospel. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about this right here. Look at this. This is, this is really good. He goes, we're not ready to hear the gospel until first we understand the indictment against humanity that comes down for us from God himself. The view of humanity that we see in Romans 3, 10 through 20, what we're about to cover, is on collision course with everything our culture tells us about our natural condition. People today, in 2023, want to profoundly disagree with Paul's assessment of ourselves. But what matters is God's assessment of our condition. We want to think we're okay, but we're really not. Look at verse 10 through 12. It means the gospel. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And there is no one who understands, and there is no one who seeks God. And all, all all the inclusive terms, all have fallen away, and all have fallen short. They've all turned away, and they are together become worthless. And there is no one who does good, not even one. Not one person in this room, not one person in the church in Rome is right with God on our own efforts. Not one of us. Not even, not even the sweetest grandma that loves Jesus in the whole world. Not, not even you know, my grandmother, your grandmother, not even, grandpa, somebody, the, the, the greatest patriarch of, of your family, the testament of faith, not even them by themselves are not righteous alone. They need Jesus. And if you ever share Jesus, I don't know, but if you've ever shared the gospel with people and you want to help somebody who doesn't know Jesus understand, and you, you know what they almost 90%, that's a made up stat, 90% of the time they're going to they're gonna tell you, well, I well, I think someday I'll get to glory. I'm gonna, I, I went to church. I gave. I, I, I didn't cuss a lot. You know, I, 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 went, I, did a, I didn't do a lot of bad things. And it's all I, 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 I. But it's not about I. It's about him. I want to show you a two-minute clip of, some, uh, of a pastor that does it much better than I. And then we're going to finish this up. But Alistair Begg talks about the thief on a cross. It deals with this. We bring nothing to the table. So watch this. I don't do it a whole lot. But I want you to see this two-minute clip. Because it's better than I could do it. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, mm. because he. And think about the thief on the cross. And what an amazing, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day <laughs> to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, what, what, did, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor agent. It's, so, we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, 
are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification <laughs> by faith? The guy said, I never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture in these days. This guy's just staying. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Hmm. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. I love that because, man, I wish I could preach in an accent too. I wish I had an accent. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Even in our pursuit of him, even in our attempt to come after him, John 6, 44 says that no man even comes to the Father unless God draws him to himself. If our, if our lives are marked by trying to do more and do good and things we bring to the table, it is, it's insufficient. We can't. And that's what Paul's trying to get these guys to understand, that everybody needs the gospel. Jew, Gentile, there's value in all of these things. I remember, I'm, I'm going to skip a, a quote I was going to share with you just for time. I want to keep moving, but I remember the rich young ruler. Do you remember the rich young ruler? When he comes up to Jesus and he said, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And what did Jesus tell him? He said, he told him about the law. He says, obey. And he says, I've done all that. And then he, what does he tell him? He says, I want you to go sell off all your stuff because the value of the money, that's what he had. That's what he wanted. Did Jesus need his money? Did, was Jesus broke, needed a little bit and put the offering plate for the, No. He wanted his heart, but he knew the thing that that man would not let go of. And he said, did you hear what he said? I've done all of that. Can you do all the right things and do all the religious things, yet not know the God of the universe through Jesus Christ? Yes, we said it for the last two weeks. We're going to stand before Jesus someday, every one of us. And all we have is, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And it's not the man on the middle cross that I could come. I gave my life, I follow him, and my life is marked by him, and I'm changed by him. Do we know him? We don't want to hear what Jesus says, depart me for I don't know you. Nobody wants to hear that. So it's not about acquiring knowledge. It's not about what we know. It's not just about all the things in our brains, but it's about our heart that's been changed. Paul's going to quickly deal with this in 13 through 17. He's going to talk about what we say. He says, they, their, 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 their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. deceit excuse me. They're, they're, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Outside of the saving grace of Jesus, our words typically aren't great. And apparently they're smelly. He describes them as an open grave. Deep down, Paul says he sees an open grave that is stinking, rotting corpse that is a stench coming from our mouth. It's not about what we say. It's not about what we can claim. It's about our lives. But he wants to be careful because in 15 through 17, he's going to talk about our actions. There, the religious, those people who trust that their feet are swift to shed blood. To ruin them in misery, they mark their waves. In the ways of peace, they do not know. Listen to this verse 18. It's haunting. Please look at this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You want to talk about a dark and lonely and scary place. If the things of God don't scare you or frighten you, if you can read and study or hear about a righteous, holy, King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign and just God, and nothing in you is humbled by that, we don't, and I can't, we can't walk in here beating our chest of who we think we are and do this. And that's what Paul's trying to humble these guys. No fear, no honor, no respect is before their eyes. Paul quotes this from Psalm 36, and he says, I have a message that comes in my heart concerning sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look at this. It's all inward focus. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves. 
too much to, de- to detect their own hate or their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or good. They are consumed with themselves. They know everything, but in their own eyes, they flatter themselves. They, they convince themselves. They minimize their sin. They minimize the wrongness. They convince themselves that they are okay. Does that happen in the church today? This is heavy stuff, I know, and I don't know who decided to preach to Romans. I'm just kidding, it was me. But I'm just telling you that. Is it possible in 2023 that we, if not careful, can be deceived by Satan and think, I'm okay, I'm good? Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and the Holy One, all this kind of stuff. And I, and I think about what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, fear of God. He says, therefore, my friends, as, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Not work for, but work it out. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. You know what he tells the church of Philippi? It is a healthy, reverent, awe, fear, respect of God. And you got to work it out. But my question to you, and, let me, and I need you all to hear this, for, and I'm at the top of the list, we all need to understand this. What does the fear of God look like in your life? Not in church, not in here where we do all this, we sing songs, and everything about it is described and, and prepared for us to, to give God our glory. I'm talking about in the quiet recesses of your day, in the quiet recesses of your week, in the worst parts of your day, when it comes to our sin, our life, our faith, all of these things, is there an awe and reverence for the fear of God? Or do we minimize things and do we turn them on ourselves? And we, as the psalm says, that we convince ourselves that we're good. Is our life marked by fear of the Lord? So Paul paints this dark backdrop. He paints this dark backdrop of, of sin and despair. And he covers three chapters, basically, all these letters this, about need for Jesus. Are we reverent in awe? Do we have respect? Are we humble? I think back in the old days, if a king would walk in a room, they would kneel and stop what they're doing. I don't know who that would equate to today in our world if somebody would walk in this room and we'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm going to confess to you, sometimes, I've said this, I said this two months ago, I said sometimes I think what we believe is how we live. And if God of the universe is this distant, far-off, cosmic, created thing that's out there and not a personal, just, wrathful God for the sins of the world that he's going to judge, but he gave grace through Jesus to do all this so we can escape all that. If we have no reverence at all, then we kind of push him away as this distant God that's just kind of out there. But the gospel shines here. Humanity's need for the gospel is up front and center, be it the first century church or the 21st century church. Nineteen and twenty, we're done. Paul's going to include to the verdict as he's built this case. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every hear this. This is so that every mouth may be silenced. So that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world, catch this, this is important, look at 1920 again, 
so that every mouth may be silenced and hear this, and the whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one is declared righteous in God's sight. Nobody. By the works of the law, rather, through the law, we become conscious or, conscious, excuse me, or aware of sin. So here's the crux. This is very important. The law makes us aware of our need for Jesus. Like the kids asking the questions, we get to the point where some of the things we can do, but all of a sudden, hey, 12 times 12, thanks Travis, 12 times 12, what are we going to do? We need outside help. we got to get somebody. We need help. We can't do it. Some things we can, but we need help because the law of God is designed to point us to our need for Jesus. But I need you to hear the weight of this, and I'm almost done. Please feel the weight of this. If you're nothing else today, every mouth will be silenced and the entire world will be held accountable. And there is no one, repeat, no one, verse 20, who will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. There is nobody, church, who is going to stand before the God of the universe and be judged for sin, which we will all be there. There's no Disney fast pass where we get to escape it. Even if we are, are full believers, we're going to stand and we're going to give an account. We've already covered that. But nobody's going to bank on what we bring to the table. There is no I, there is no I've done this, or I, I gave this, or I gave my life to Jesus. No, it is about what the man on the middle cross has done. He came, he died, he rescued, he paid the price. What the law could not do, God did by sending Jesus Christ to fulfill the law. So there's no more excuses and there's no more words to say and there's no rebuttals. And you can imagine a courtroom, if it was a legal setting where the sentence and the verdict was set, it is silence fills the room. Silence fills the room. There is nothing to say other than the verdict of all are going to be judged. All are going to do this. No one declared righteous. No more talking. But there is a righteousness. Here's the hope, church. Here's the hope. We're going we're gonna to celebrate it in great detail next week, so please come back. If you drove here, drive back next week if you live out of town. There is a righteousness that comes apart from the law that is found in Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate next week and take the Lord's Supper because God did what the law could not do. The law couldn't save us. The law points us to our hope of Jesus. There is a righteousness. There is a way to be made right with God apart from the law. Jesus Christ has come, and we have all sinned. We've all fallen short because we can't do it. Romans 8, I'm closing with these couple of verses. Hear the hope of the gospel here. Therefore, we'll cover this later in Romans 8. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gave us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did it. God did it, God did it. He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so to be condemned in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what the law couldn't do, we can't be good enough, we can't earn it. God did all of it by sending Jesus and stepping out of heaven and coming to this earth. He died a horrible, brutal sinner's death that we deserve. And here's my prayer, is that we deserve, we deserve, we deserve sin. I mean, death for our sin. But God in his grace and his mercy, he used the law, not just for the Jews, but he used it for all of us to reveal our need to be saved. We can't do enough good. We can't, we can't, we can't. 
my prayer today is this, is that some hearts would be stirred. That maybe there's somebody here that you know all the knowledge about Jesus, but your life is not marked by him. And, you, and maybe you've even prayed a prayer, got baptized. That's, that's great. But maybe there's somebody here that's done none of those things, and your heart is really, it terminates on yourself, and you are all about you and what's best for you. And I pray that somebody today, their hearts might be stirred because God's moving and God's drawing you in to create a healthy reverence, awe, respect, and fear. Saying, I can't do this. I need help. That there will be eternal separation, that there will be judgment for sin, and we can't earn it, and we can't be good enough. And I put in my notes here, underlined, two words, but God. But God. By His grace that we've been saved through faith, and it's not of us, it is a gift. May we bank on the words. I think about what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live right now in this body. To those in Christ, if you're a believer, here's the challenge for you. For those in Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. And I will not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness or being right with God could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Here's the challenging thing. If you are a believer in Christ, the challenging thing for me, for you, if you're in Christ, is your life as though you're living, as though Jesus died for nothing? That you can earn it, you can maintain it, you can keep it? If you don't know Jesus, then my question is this, is I want you to maybe come today or find a family member, find somebody say, I know a lot about him, but I don't know. If I stood before him today, I don't know what I'd do. Come find me. Find a parent, find a friend. Someone ask you to bow where you're at, and we're going to close. We're going to celebrate the, 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 the hope of the gospel next week through the Lord's Supper. But right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to evaluate your heart. I'm asking everybody in the room, please. How's that healthy fear and awe of God going? If you don't know Jesus, then ask questions. Maybe today there's something in you that's being stirred and it's just something's not right. That's God drawing you to himself. And if there's anybody in this room, because it's very tempting sometimes for those who, who know Jesus that we can begin to, to rely on works and doing good and trying to maintain some things. And our life looks like, well, Jesus didn't even have to die if we're just going to try to do it all of ourselves. I'm going to ask you to repent of that and ask God to help you trust in the finished work of the gospel. So the, the praise team, they're going to start singing, and I just want you to do like last week. Just sit and pray and if you want to stand and sing, stand and sing. But whatever he's asking, would you just obey?